Hola, this is Enrique Morones of Gente Unida with Buen Hombre Magnificent Mujer. And uh, once again, we have a real dynamic and wonderful Magnificent Mujer that's going to be joining us today. And as always, we have influence makers, people in the know, people that you should know. And coming along with the theory that I've always believed in, which is that one person, and not only I, many, many people believe this, one person can make a huge difference. And here's a person that I've really wanted to get to know because I've read about her, I've, I've heard of her, and I know she's a hero and she hails from the wonderful country of Iran. And her name is Adi Ponarvar. Now I'm all confused because I was pronouncing it the Persian way, but now I've got to pronounce it the Texas way. But anyways, Adi Hanarvar, welcome to Buen Hombre, Magnificent Mujer. Chetori, how are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me, Enrique. I look forward to our conversation. Well, me too. And, and uh, one of the things that I've done in my various podcasts and radio shows that I've had in the past, I've always asked the person to tell us a little bit about themselves, as if people don't know anything about you. So why don't we start off with telling us a little bit about who is Adi? Ah, so the package called Ari started um, in uh, Iran, born and raised in Iran. And I guess what I have to tell you is that if you know Persians, you know that poetry is as much part of our being as the blood that flows through our bodies. Uh, we don't just recite poems at weddings or celebrations. We use poems to um, welcome sorrow, despair, even resolve conflicts. And um, poetry is so much part of us that it has helped us survive despotic regimes, invasions, foreign invasions, and uh, our own oppression, the oppression of the various governments. Um, so so it's, it's a huge part of our lives. And it, it, uh, poetry has saved my life in, in, in uh, multiple ways thus far. Poetry has literally saved your life. And you come from a long life of, of Persian poets and uh, hailing from the country of Iran and eventually coming to the United States your life has been um, something that most people cannot even imagine. And it's been something that's very inspiring because from the bombings that you had to face as a little girl in Shiraz, Iran, to being able to be in you know, growing up as a teenager here in the United States, eventually moving to El Cajon here in San Diego, you've had quite a life. And, and more recently, you've been working a lot with a community that I've worked with all my life which is the migrants, especially the migrants along the border, and recently mainly based in Tijuana, the, the refugees and the migrants that are crossing borders all over the world. Some of them are based right there in Tijuana. So before we get to the work that you've been doing, you're, uh, you're, you're growing up in, in Iran. I find it fascinating that you had such a, a difficult time, and sometimes because of the oppression, you had to masquerade as a boy so you could go outside and ride your bicycle, et cetera. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Of course. So when I was six, women of Iran lost their right to ride a bicycle or sing in public. And just as this uh, war, on, this is because the revolution in 1979, uh, the Islamic revolution. And uh, there was a lot of corruption 
uh, in the monarchy, the Shah regime before that, and people decided that this wasn't working for them, so they wanted something better. But uh, there was an Islamic power grab, and uh, what I call that is a revolution of joylessness. They tried to take our joy away from us. Uh, singing and dancing was illegal, um, and, uh, and women's rights were cut in half. So we literally had to sit on the back of the bus as women. So this is the, and if um, a man killed a woman, you know, then she, he would have to kill basically two women to get the death penalty or get any kind of a, 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 a you know, based on the Islamic justice, justice, not that I'm, for death penalty, but but that's what was uh, happening then, and so so the so our our um, ways to deal with this oppression they were so limited. We couldn't play cards, play chess. All those things were illegal, and uh, and just as this war on people and on women was becoming our new normal, Saddam Hussein attacked us, attacked Iran, and. and uh, caused a war that lasts eight years and took a million lives. And when you're talking about a country of, at the time, about 26 million people, and a million of them are dead, or more than a million, far more than a million, were displaced, injured, or were uh, taken to prisons and executed for, for uh, political reasons. And so, so this is a situation where, where we're living in, where in my elementary school, there wasn't one kid who hadn't lost someone to political oppression or war. Uh, so we were dealing with daily funerals and food rations. You know, we had to um, stand in lines just like now for food, but uh, it was more dire then. And this lasted eight years, eight years of, of, of this. And on top of that, all the oppression. And imagine what happens when a country or, or a region is going through a crisis. Um, domestic abuse levels really go up. Um, you know, the same with child abuse. In, in the Muslim countries, we had, they uh, had to resort to child brides to get um, their, their family their kids, their young daughters out of the country. So they would find some old guy who had money and the means to take him out. So, so the number of child brides increased. And uh, a lot of aggression, a lot of um, other issues that you wouldn't think about uh, were arising at a time. And uh, Iran was a banned nation even then. Now it's like an official banned nation, but it was an unofficial banned nation for years and years, for decades. So um, we couldn't get out, refuge, you know, we were just stuck there. And so my mother, who is a poet, wrote a poem to the American embassy, uh, to actually the Indian embassy, because there's no diplomatic relations between Iran and America. So um, the Indian embassy, um, ambassador liked the poem because it was about the uh, uh, Indian Independence Day. and. Uh, gave us a visa to go to India. And when we got to India, uh, we visited the American embassy and we got a visa to come to the US. So it was a series of miracles that allowed me to come 
to the U.S. and, uh, you know, continue my journey. My um, life could have, you know, that story could have ended years ago uh, when I was 13 or 14 because I was very rebellious and I would write anti-Khomeini and anti-regime um, rhetorics on the walls of, of, uh, of on people's walls. And um, this was something that uh, not only called as treasonous, but it was, you know, treasonous against God because it's it's we lived in a theocracy. And my sister's classmate, she was only 16 when she was executed um, and for no reason, no trial. And they just told her parents to come get her body. So that could have been my fate, but um, life had uh, other plans for me. Well, that's a, it's a very um, a story that's difficult for, for most people, including myself, to imagine. And um, because of a poem that your mom wrote about India's independence, it was liked by the ambassador. You get a visa, you come to the United States as a teenager. I have some ties to India's Independence Day because in a previous life, I used to be in Major League Baseball. And I've always promoted diversity. And I came up with these uh, concepts for the San Diego Padres to celebrate diversity. Myself being Mexican, I said, we should have a, an annual event for Mexican Independence Day, et cetera. Well, one day I was talking to my boss, who was the president of the Padres, uh, Larry Lucchino. And I said, we should do something for India. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, India is the second largest uh, country in the world, population-wise. And Independence Day is coming, August 15th. Why don't we do a, a day for India? And he goes, really? And I go, yeah, because the Indian community is just as important as any other community. And for them, it'll be huge. And, it, and it'll be educational for everybody else. So we started doing, well, we started doing back then at least, a celebration for India's independence. And it's so important to live by that, um, by that model like you've done, where you celebrate other cultures, other countries. Here you are at, uh, or at least Iran and Iraq were at war. And you come to the United States, and I believe you meet a, an Iraqi um, young lady that had had a similar situation as far as being in her home and having the bombs come down where she lived. Uh, and and the, you, know, the, you were on opposite sides of that war, not you, but the countries, and you learn to become friends and to work together on promoting love and, 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 and so forth. Maybe share a little bit about that. Right, and, and also, um, you know, just the, the plight of refugees is so universal. Uh, but this was quite interesting because um, this uh, lady, Delhuaz Ahmed, she is a, a Kurdish uh, Iraqi, and uh, I met her through Musical Ambassadors of Peace, uh, which is an organization. They actually went to Iraq right after the war the, in, the invasion and uh, they sang into, in the streets of, of Iraq, uh, Iraqi love songs, this, this couple. And, uh, and the Iraqis were so overjoyed because these were not military contractors. These were not trying to sell them or profit off of them in any way. They just loved their culture and they wanted to bring that back to the, the, uh, the American audiences that the, the message that they would learn from them. So um, I met her through through that organization and uh, we started talking and, it, 
and we talked about the war and it was like, oh my God, uh, my friends and people who I knew were killed by this woman's friends and people who she knew and vice versa. This is just the nature of war. And now here we are, we are looking at each other and we have so much love for each other and we want to, to devote our lives to um, making sure that people who have to take the difficult choice of leaving their home, leaving all their belongings behind, ha have a sense of no matter where they are. So that's, that's, a, that's a connection that I made through that. And then uh, when the migrant um, caravan came in April of 2018, I was right there covering it as a journalist and, and I was just horrified when the separation, the child separation really started to take off. They had done that before the ICE and CBP, but um, this was, then they made it a policy and it was horrific. And then I'm, I'm um, here interviewing children, you know, who don't remember their parents because they've been uh, in separated from them for months and they've been traumatized beyond belief where they're they can't recognize their parents they think that my this woman who is their mom is another social worker and um and it's just horrific horrific uh stuff so i i wanted to bring some of that um that that joy that uh, from musical ambassadors of peace where we try to um, create a sense of community and home and, and uh, relieve depression, anxiety and trauma to, to the Central American um, and Mexican asylum seekers too. And, and one of the thing about these asylum seekers, these uh, migrants and refugees, like the uh, Iranian Iraqi war, a lot of it is caused by other forces. You know, the policies of the United States have greatly influenced uh, or helped uh, bring on these wars. And in the case of the Iran-Iraqi war, the United States was on one side, you know, they were supporting Saddam Hussein, and then they, they go to, and then they switch. And, and so they're going back and forth. You have the, when people talk about, because I get this all the time and working in human rights all my life, all oh, corruption, corruption. And I go, yes, there's corruption in the entire world. But I don't think there's a country more corrupt, and people get mad, I don't think there's a country more corrupt than the United States. Oh, how dare you? How can you say that? And I go, because when we have corruption, we Mexicans, when we have corruption, and we do, it affects Mexico. When the United States has corruption, and it does, it affects the whole world. And one of the examples is Oliver North, the Iran-Iraqi uh, war. What's going on right now with these, these children and families that are leaving Central America and the interference in their wars by the Ronald Reagan administration, et cetera. So people don't look at that. They just look at the, the situation that they're seeing in front of their eyes or they're hearing in the news. And they don't realize that these children are innocent bystanders. And they, like people all over the world, their parents want their children to have a better life. And that's something that you've dedicated your life to after getting involved with the, uh, the ambassador program that you, know, that you learned about and so forth. But before you went to, to Tijuana and, and were doing your journalistic work with the, with the you know, interviewers and so forth, weren't you doing like some, some drum circles and so forth in, in El Cajon with the, the Syrians and Afghani and, 
and Iraqi refugees that are there? Yes, um, exactly. And, uh, and uh, Afghanistan was like such a prime example of what you're talking about, the, the U.S. going in and causing this horrific war, you know, they were already ravaged by the Soviets. And, um, and then the Taliban came and, uh, well, the Taliban never left. So I was, um, so this program was drumming and dancing with refugees from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iran. And we're, you know, um, speaking four different languages. So drum, the drum was our main source of communication. And a lot of this, uh, the program is designed to, to release trauma. And uh, uh, one of the things that we would supplement the, the, the work with is uh, to journal or to um, do something other than drumming and dancing to let the work integrate into our being. And uh, one time I, there were these two women from Afghanistan and I had given them, a, uh, given everyone a simple assignment of, of writing down, you know, how, how do you feel right now? How did you feel this morning? What, what are you feeling now? And I saw that they just had the, the, uh, the, the pen in their hands and, uh, and they're not writing anything. So I went over there and we speak Farsi so I could speak to them in their, in their mother tongue. And I asked, um, what, why aren't you writing? And they said, we we're stupid. We don't we don't write. You know we um, we don't read or write. The Taliban never let us. And I was like, oh my God, this is so horrible that that, that they did this. Um, so, but uh, it's is it what is it like now? And they said, oh, you know, the Taliban never left. You know, they're just as corrupt. And I was just floored, and I was so upset. I knew that this was what was happening there, but. Um, and I, so we got to talking and we talk, talked about what was happening in their hometown now. And they said, nothing is better. The Taliban has never left. This uh, 20 year war with Afghanistan has led to nothing uh, except for more destruction, more destabilization and uh, worsening of human rights and uh, women's rights for, for for, uh, for them. So, so the whole um, group, as a group, I explained to them what was happening and we all joined in and we're like, no, you're not stupid. You can't, and they were like, no, there's too late for us. We can't read or write anymore, you know? So we're like encouraging them to, to read or write. And, and, um, and then they, uh, we asked, you know, since they couldn't write at the moment, I said, why don't you draw a picture for me? And they were both um, had made um, rugs, Persian rugs before. So they drew these beautiful little intricate mandalas uh, as part of their assignment. And, uh, and, and then they left with a sense of, yes, we can with an empowerment. We can, we are gonna go to English classes. We are gonna keep trying to learn to read and write um, and, um, and just, um, it was a heartbreaking uh, day for, for, for me to, to see how much damage um, has been afflicted on, on, on the world. And it's so powerful uh, to see them realize their self-worth. I had an experience uh, a couple of years ago with a, um, a young man from Guatemala that showed up and uh, his name is Roberto and I got to know him a little bit. 
And uh, one day we were helping him. I'm not an attorney, but there was an attorney with us that I took him to and he needed to sign something. And he told me that he couldn't write. So I spent a few weeks with him while he was still staying with us. And that was the first time in my life that I spent time with a, an adult young man. He was a, you know, maybe 18, 19 years old, teaching someone to write. And just to see the pride in him, you know, to write the letter R and he would stare at it. So, you know, because they think because they can't write, somehow it's their fault. And, and somehow that equates with their self-worth. And I go, no, no, you're very intelligent. You're much brighter than I am. Uh, and the fact that I don't know how to write, that's, that's nothing. And you, you can learn how to write. And, and he did. So it's so powerful. And as you're mentioning, with these people from Afghanistan and, and, and the middle, in countries in the Middle East, uh, the, the, the drumming and, 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 and how that's kind of therapeutic because that is a way they can express themselves with, with the dancing and the drumming and, and the music, et cetera. And I know that um, you come from a, a line of Persian poets and talking about poets, there's a, you've done a lot of work with a, a mystical poet named Rumi, who is uh, from, from the, what is now Turkey. And you have a captivating, because I, I, want, I want to get to the Central American uh, migrants in a little bit, but you, you have that captivating work, um, a Rumi with a view. I don't know if it's a Rumi or Rumi with a view. I think of a room with a view when I first <laughs> saw that. And I think that's so powerful because here is a, you know, here's a person that, you know, is so insightful and so powerful. You know, somebody that says, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Well, wow, you know, that's, that's unbelievable. Um, only from the heart can you touch the sky. And this is a person from the 13th century saying these things. And then you kind of have taken him up and you're working on these various projects. So tell us a little bit about, is it a room with the, a roomy with a view or a roomy with a view? Yeah, roomy with a view. It's play on words. Okay. Room with a view a friend of mine i would just burst into these uh recitations of rumi's poetry in both farsi and english and uh, in in the middle of like lunch and someone was like oh my god look rumi with a view <laughs> and, and so that became my, my website um i can tell you a, a story that i that i tell during my um my um uh, performances about the power of rumi's poetry and it's about when I was a child and uh, when we were particularly brave during the wartime blackouts, we'd go to our rooftops and watch the anti-aircraft missiles shoot up into the air. And, uh, and the patterns that these made in the sky, these was as glorious as a 4th of July pattern, these red patterns. To my seven-year-old eyes, they were just brilliant. But right underneath that awe, there was such a terror. Who was the battery of death going to get next? Was it going to be me, my friend, my best friend, my sister in Tehran, my teacher? And then, as I'm just so full of terror, someone from another rooftop would shout, Even if 
sky, poison befalls all. I am still sweetness, wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness. And then someone from below, a passerby, would respond, while others are singing about love, I am the son of love. Now, verses like that go right into your heart and radiate to mm -hmm. every cell of your being until you're everything and nothing at the same time. And what bomb could ever touch that? Powerful, powerful. And, and so these, this whole, these performances that you've done and these readings and, um, you know, spreading the word, the good word, one of the things that I always say is that love, and this is an example of it, love is an action, not just a word. And here you are practicing it. With the therapy, we've talked to people that do art therapy, muralists, et cetera, but you're doing music therapy and, and dance po uh, therapy, po uh, poetry therapy, and sharing that love and seeing the response from the people, because that could be interpreted, uh, even if you don't speak that particular language when you're talking about poetry, but with dance, with music, with art, that's a language in itself. And even right now, when you're speaking in Farsi, which I do not speak, but you can feel the power. You can feel the power. It radiates, especially when you're in front of the person and you're, you're making motions and so forth. So with all of that background, uh, all of a sudden you're working in Tijuana because you're doing some story or journalism work, and, and you, come you come across this migration. People that are fleeing predominantly Central America because they're trying to have a better life because if they stay where they're at, Either they're going to be killed, they're going to starve to death, they're going to disappear because of the environment. For various reasons, they're leaving, much of it because of violence in their home country. And it's the same story once again. And you must be thinking, I've lived this. I've lived this. So what did you think when you saw these children from Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala predominantly? Uh, yeah, my first instinct is to protect them all, you know, like, I think that's a very human instinct to to want to, to tell them that it's okay. Um, so. <laughs> because it's such a, it was such a sad, I, I was there as well. And I was also there, I believe you were there that Thanksgiving when the Border Patrol started tear gassing into Tijuana and so forth. And just the horrors of that, treating people not like people and total disregard for the children and not realizing that the roots of why they're leaving, a lot of it is because of the policies of the United States. By no means am I saying that the countries they're coming from don't need to improve on things. Of course, all of us need to improve, all 200 countries. But to do the things that certain countries do, like England did to India, and that's why India and Gandhi had their independence, what has happened in Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan, what's happening in Central America, Mexico, a lot of that has to do with policies of the United States. So these children are, are the least uh, at fault. They're not at fault at all. 
And a society is judged on how we treat our children. So you see this is going on. You see how we got to protect these children. And you start going to the shelters and start doing some sort of a performance therapy. How, how did that develop? So we go in not as, uh, you know, I have very astute musicians, uh, very talented musicians that go with me. And it's not a concert. We, I say, this is a service. We're just there to serve their needs and see what they want. So like m the music that we played with the Iraqi and the Afghan uh, population is, is the, what they grew up with, you know? Like there were all these Yazidi women who had been enslaved by ISIS and they were freed. Uh, they had seen their children you know, killed in front of them, for example, and then the, their 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 uh, husbands and their sons, and uh, and so so they like through the song singing these songs that they grew up with and they loved. They were able to just create a sense of camaraderie. Um, so so that was customized for that population. Um, for for the Central Americans, they really loved cumbia. So we are like, all right, we're gonna. Uh, play cumbia, something that they grew up with and they could love and they could dance with and they could just remember good memories because good memories help us become more resilient when we uh, start, you know, going back and uh, and uh, reveling in, in, a, in, a, in a good uh, memory that happened a long time ago that it actually improves our mental health. So, so by not only good times but also losing yourself in a dance and singing uh, that just creates these neural connections these new neural connections that you need to to keep getting better and better and deal with challenges that come ahead uh, so with uh, with the dancing we we tell them we don't we're not dancing just for fun this is not of course we're gonna have fun but we're dancing so your children could feel safe we're dancing so we can feel that there is a sense of home no matter where we are. We're dancing and singing so we can build our immunity, you know, during all the outbreaks that uh, we've been through measles outbreaks, mumps, rubella, and of course now COVID. Uh, so, so they still are sending me videos of them dancing and singing and keep improving their resilience. And it's so important, and I love that uh, that saying that you like to uh, repeat from uh, Ed, from Emma Goldman, that if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. That's such, that's such a powerful statement, because it, you see that. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I said it is. I was agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah, it's such a powerful statement, and and I, I can actually visualize it. You know, I can actually visualize it because I've been in, in many of those shelters even before this situation, and we've always wanted to interact with the children, and, and we have. And I have no musical or dancing abilities or poetry abilities, none of that. But I can relate to the children because um, when anybody wants to know if God exists, I always tell them, look into the eyes of a child. Look into the eyes of a the child. They're looking at you with total trust and love. They're not judging you. And if we could all be like children, the world would be a much, much better place. 
And we have done all sorts of activities with the migrants. I remember we did a music event back in 2013, and I had the San Diego Symphony on one side of the wall and the Baja California Orchestra on the other at Friendship Park when you were able to do that. And so they both played on both sides, and it was beautiful. You know, first one side would play, then the other. And then eventually they both played at the same time. And those types of events, music, dance, poetry, it's so powerful because it touches the soul. And the fact that we need to have human touch, and we miss it now more than ever, in 2016, at that same very place, I convinced the Border Patrol and uh, the previous administration, you can't do that anymore, but I convinced the Border Patrol to, and the U.S. government to open up the door at Friendship Park. And we actually had families hug. A child would hug their parent, in some cases for the first time, and sadly in some places for the last time. You know, that's not uh, taking place anymore, but we will. We will, we will touch again. We will dance again. We will love again. Nothing is going to stop us. And you're doing it right now with the work that you're doing. And that's why it is so, so powerful because you're speaking to people, not only that speak Spanish, like in those countries, but as you know, you know, these, these refugees and children are coming from Africa, from Asia, from other parts of Latin America. And the children, the children, what could be more beautiful than a child? And to have suffered that, uh, you know, what they've had in their young life, like you did. Uh, and, and you you tell the case of a, of a young six, a six-year-old Guatemalan girl that was sexually abused in a detention, uh, for a Southwest Key, I believe it was. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, I remember that case. Maybe you could talk a little bit about it, how horrible that was. Yeah, it was horrific. So, so the one thing that I don't think the American public can really grasp, grasps this, is that detention centers are prisons. They are actual prisons. We are putting kids, babies in jails when we put them in detention centers. Uh, and the thing that happened in this case was that the girl was uh, separated from her mother, Guatemalan six-year-old girl, at the Texas border. The mother went one way. She went to Arizona to a Southwest Key facility. And she was, you know, they, there was a PREA report, which is prison rape, um, something, prison rape. Um, it's, it's, it's called PREA. It's a legal term that uh, that is you to prevention act that's what it is prison rape prevention act um so you're you have to fill out these forms if kids are sexually any prisoner is sexually assaulted and she was six years old and she they filled out this priya form and they made her sign a document that said she it was her uh responsibility to stay away from her abuser and that and then she couldn't write she's like she doesn't speak english she is traumatized she can barely you know make a broken d and the document that we got uh you know somehow someone slipped it in her bag at the time um and uh, we could you know took a picture of it and posted it and the, the document is heartbreaking it's horrifying to see uh, a broken D as a signature that you, you're making a six-year-old stay away from her abuser. And when she 
actually got home, I kept in touch with the family uh, through an activist. And she told they what they said was that she would put the lights on um, for a number of months. She would not let anyone touch her, including her parents. She didn't recognize her own family. And it was just a really horrific ordeal. It is, it's unimaginable. Uh, yeah, when I, I remember the case and I've seen that document and it you know just brings tears to my eyes when I think about that. I've encountered, unfortunately, I've encountered several situations like that. One that comes to mind was also a Guatemalan family and it was somebody that had seen me in the news or something and they called. They called, they got a hold of me and they said they, that uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security had placed her in a church in El Cajon in El Cajon, and that the mother, uh, the, the daughter was being harassed, and that the mother didn't know what to do, and there was a, a couple of little boys there as well, and I found out where it was, and I, you know, went over there right away. I went with another one of our volunteers back then, and uh, and as soon as I pulled up, uh, they came running out. They came running out, got in our cars, and we were able to provide them with shelter uh, because of the horrors that was going on, and right away I contacted uh, the the you know the, the authorities here and I said what in the, what in, why do you have people at this at this place and it was like pulling teeth to try to get them to take action you know they just wanted to get them out of there they just wanted to get them out of there and now we're kind of in a different situation where there's people in detention being held at the Otai detention facility for example and we want them to be taken out of there because of the of the COVID nineteen situation. So they, the people are not treated like people. This is the only administration, and it gets me really mad when they say, oh yeah, the other ones did the same thing. They did not do the same thing. The other ones by no means were they saints. They made a lot of errors, but you didn't have the, not in the same manner, not in the same manner. The children separated from their parents, the children put in cages, uh, the, the migrants have been tear gassed. And as you know, we had six children in a period of about six months that died in border patrol custody. These are children, the, the same age. That had never happened before. And uh, it is it, the horrors, it's hard for them to imagine. So what you can do by bringing the, uh, the, the music and the poetry and the dancing and the drum circle to them is very powerful. And right now it becomes very complicated. So it's all done virtually. We're doing some programs virtually. Uh, we're lining up a program right now and we're probably gonna be asking you to, to help us out a little bit uh, with Sarah Bella, and and that is to have you know dance lessons and music lessons and and so forth virtually, and and we have a lot of artists that we've worked with, and having them teach the children virtually, at the shelters in Tijuana, we work a lot with the shelters in Tijuana, and one of the persons, the person that's um, the person I work very closely with, and he's and he's worked with me very closely for for over a decade. He was involved in these caravans because in the very first caravan, he actually went missing. He went missing and, and he disappeared in Mexico and he had been born in the United States. So I called the U.S. State Department and we and they were able to find him. And he was in the hospital. And after what they found him, he was hospitalized in Mexico for, for over a month and then in San Diego for over a month. And he had to go through rehab and so forth. And he's still very active with us. And he's working on, the, on this very program that I'm talking about. You may have come across him. His name is Hugo Castro, yes. and he's a yeah. He's a he, you know he, he. I don't know anybody that visits the shelters down there more than Hugo, 
right now, right now, as we speak, he's been visiting the shelters in Mexicali. Uh, but he lives in Tijuana and he, so he knows firsthand uh, some of the horrors. And yeah, so you have these, these real uh, incredible people like yourself, like Google, that are working with these, uh, with these children and the adults, but the children, the children are the ones that need the, the most help. And uh, that's why you're just so impressed with the work that you're doing. And I know that uh, this work continues, whether it's here in San Diego, especially in the El Cajon region, if it's people from the Middle East, or in, in various areas in San Diego, if it's people from Latin America. But we're everywhere. We're everywhere because uh, there's 200 countries in the world. And currently, right now, there's 250 million undocumented people living in a country that's not their own. And they don't want to leave. The people don't want to leave their homeland. They have to leave because of safety, like in your situation, because of hunger, like in the situation of somebody else looking for work. The number one reason people leave their country to go to another country is because of hunger. And I'll never forget, I was able to work somewhat with President Obama when we had the children turning themselves into the Texas border back in 2014. And he said in a meeting one time, you know, I know how to, how to uh, end this terrorism. And we're thinking, what? Who in the world knows how to end the terrorism? And as bright as he is, as brilliant as he is, he goes, yeah, there's, there's one way to end terrorism. And, you know, we all thought it was going to be something different. And he said, feed the people. If the people had food and security in their homeland, for the most part, they wouldn't leave. You know, they don't want to leave their culture and their, and their language and their families. Who wants to leave? They don't want to leave. They have to leave. And I think that's a lot of things that uh, people in this country, because most, most people in the United States, like anywhere else, are wonderful people. But they just don't know. They don't know. They can't think back a couple of hundred years ago when they were leaving you know, their homeland and so forth for various reasons. And this country is not just a com- country of immigrants. I'm Mexican. So my family never crossed the border. You know, the border crossed us because this was all Mexico before it was taken by the United States in 1846. If you're Native American, you know, you're already here. You are already here. And I'm talking about the indigenous people of these lands. And if you're African ancestry, for the most part, you were brought here by force. So those are groups of people that are not immigrants. But the a little bit more than half of the people in the United States today do come from immigrant roots from Europe or from other parts of the world. And people seem to forget. They seem to forget that when they first came, uh, they were doing the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. They were facing discrimination. And it's easy to forget. And uh, they don't want to remember that. And it's important that they remember that. And I think one of the things that's going to come out of this virus is that we're seeing how essential all these communities are. The bus driver, the, the healthcare worker, the farmer, the nurses, the person that works in the grocery store, et cetera. Um, Cause we tend to forget about those people. Now we realize how much we need them. And that's why it's important that we set a, a good example. And on these, on these projects that you're working on, because I'm really fascinated by the, the work that you've done, uh, Rumi with a view and so forth. And I know you're continuing with these different projects. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about these projects that you're working on now? Right. Um, so one thing I wanted to just um, mention about what you said about people being hungry and that's why they're leaving. And unfortunately, our asylum laws 
do doesn't recognize people who are hungry and are leaving. We, you can't uh, seek refuge if, if uh, you're dealing with a drought and starvation. Uh, it only has to be political reasons. Where you, and this is such a big hole in our system uh, that, that I hope that one day will be fixed. Um, and not only that, not only that, the, the asylum, the international asylum laws are not being respected by this administration. Right. So even though, they, and we, we have one of our board members for Gente Unida, you might know her, is Nicole Ramos, an yeah. asylum attorney. And uh, she's also a guest of, of a Buen Hombre Magnificent Mujer in talking about that, talking about what Al Otro Lado does and what the people that are predominantly in this need right now. So half of the podcast was in Spanish so that the people that only speak Spanish would, would, you know, would hear what she had to say, but you're, you're absolutely right. We got to really fix this, fix these laws and respect the laws. Absolutely. Because another thing that people often, often say, and this really gets me upset, they'll say, cause I've done all the shows. I mean, I've done the, the, the more normal shows like the Today show and CNN. But I've also done the crazy shows. I mean, I've, I've debated Hannity and Tucker Carlson and O'Reilly and all those guys. And they get really mad when, cause they'll come out and say some crazy thing like, well, a lot of crazy things. But one of them will be, well, this is a country of laws. And I'll say, name a country in the world that's not a country of laws. Nazi Germany was a country of laws. They were bad laws, but they were a country of laws. So what is that supposed to mean? A country of laws. What we should be talking is about humane laws, uh, not just laws, because there's bad laws and there's good laws. And right now there's a lot of bad laws that need to be fixed. Absolutely. Right. And as for Al Otro Lado, um, uh, I did a set session. Sometimes I do sessions for uh, helpers and uh, for the lawyers and the volunteers. I did some of the two-hour retreat program. Uh, with drumming and dancing and, and resilience building exercises. So yes, I'm definitely uh, have a lot of respect for what they're doing. And uh, I'm horrified as you are about dismantling of all the asylum laws and taking their tools away where they could help their clients. Well, one of the things I need to ask you, since you so mentioned that you did a retreat for them. I'm working on. Uh, mm -hmm. Right, right. But before that, before that, you were talking about that you did a retreat with drumming and dancing for Al Otro Lado. Yes. So a very important question that, that our listeners are going to want to know. How was Nicole Ramos's dancing? She wasn't there. She was working 24 hours a day, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> okay, but as far as your project, yeah, so tell us about your projects that you're working on now. Right. So uh, the... Uh, one thing that I have a um, a uh, upcoming article and uh, it has a working title of the most revolutionary acts we can take right now is cultivating joy, and it's based on what some of the stuff we just talked about um, about uh, my childhood and what poetry did for us and what humor and dancing and in secret, you know, and, uh, and singing and all those things. And just take a savoring a moment, um, just anything. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Uh, every day we can uh, go ahead and use the neuroplasticity in our brain, the ability to change and organize 
itself. The brain has this really remarkable ability and we can use it to our advantage uh, by just savoring moments that are pleasurable to us. So, uh, so that's beautiful. Mm -hmm, absolutely. We have a negativity bias. It's a innate negativity bias in our biology. And uh, because our ancestors, the predators would come in and the poisonous plant and such, you know, you had to really focus on negative to survive. But now it's become a, uh, a, a design flaw rather than a feature, um, according to some of the neuropsychologists I talked to. And so how can we, you know, turn things around and uh, overcome this, this negativity bias? But it, the only thing that we can do is just increase our capacity for joy. And it's, it's such a simple thing and uh, people dismiss it, but it's, it's, uh, it actually works. Um, then um, I'm also offering the uh, 45 minute Zoom sessions to volunteers and essential workers based on this very notion, just, uh, just cultivating joy in 45 minutes, just relaxing, it's like a massage for the soul. And uh, yeah, yeah, just, and it's so simple. And then the more we do it, the more resilient we become, the more our capacity for, to, to deal with challenges increase increases so all we're doing is just making ourselves bigger and bigger and bigger and that's i think uh the the basis of any kind of a spiritual practice is is to become as big as the world to become one with the world so so this is one mm. way to do it. Uh, one with life one with god you know. um yes and then, um, and with Rumi, are you working on a project with the Rumi, Room with a View type of a project? Yeah, so Rumi with a View, I have an Oracle Cards deck, uh, which I've taken all the paintings, one of the paintings is behind me, um, of, uh, of Rumi's poetry in Farsi. And uh, I, I make, make a calligram uh, using the words of the poem, which is a calligraphic depiction. And then, so then people can use it as a tarot type, uh, an oracle deck. So they use it for meditation. It's another way to cultivate joy. There are um, meditations and stories about Rumi's life and the esoteric aspects of Persian poetry, uh, which, which help us become, you know, to have deeper roots in, in, uh, in, this, in this world. So um, that uh, is one of the, the, the deck is going to be featured in Spirituality and Health Magazine and how you know, the, the whole colonization of spirituality, of Eastern spirituality is, is one of the themes in the, in the magazine in uh, May and June. So, so that's another thing I'm doing. And I also did a piece for, uh, on uh, Mario Torero, a, uh, your friend, uh, who um, the Peruvian muralist American muralist who was one of the people who spearheaded Chicano Park, and that should be coming out next week. Well, that's fantastic. Mario is a, a dear friend, and this whole year since Chicano Park Day, the anniversary, which was um, you know just passed, we're going to be talking to people that were influenced makers as far as Chicano Park is concerned, and we already had a Mario on our podcast. He was one of the first 
people we interviewed because he was such a key, he's played such a key role and continues to play a key role, uh, talking about art and so forth. Him and I traveled to Berlin on November 9th, and we were there to uh, give the message of building bridges, not walls. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the speech that I gave. And he talked about uh, Chicano and Chicano Park, et, et cetera. So it's so important, as you have done, and build bridges. Adi, where, how can people get a hold of you, of your work, if they want to purchase some of the, uh, you know, the books and, and, and the therapy sessions and, and so on and so forth? Or they want to link up to find out these articles that you've written. Uh, how can people access that? Uh, the website is called roomywithaview.com. Um, and uh, yeah, they can contact me through that or I'm on social media too. Okay. And uh, I'm going to ask you, one of the questions I ask everybody uh, is what is love? You know, what is love to you? And, uh, and then I'm also going to ask you, maybe after you tell me what is love to you, to maybe read us one of your, your, your favorite, one of your favorite Rumi poems, because I've seen some of them and they're beautiful. And maybe you could uh, read one uh, as we end here. But before that, I ask a lot of the people that I've had uh, as guests on various uh, shows that I've had in my life, what is love? What, what is love to you? Hmm. There, there is a poem I'm, I'm thinking about, and it says something like, whatever is given with love is precious to me, and whatever is given by life is love. So everything, yeah. <laughs> everything is, is love, good or bad, um, this and that, and everything. Life itself is, is, is love. Well said. That's, that's true. That's beautiful. Um, is there, um, so that's, is there a poem in particular that you could think of besides yes. love yeah. that you think of when you think that you would like to maybe close out with? Yeah. I've always been uh, so, so fascinated with suffering, with human suffering and the nature of suffering and how we have a tendency that we want to, to just push away suffering as if it's an unwanted guest in our lives. And there is this one beautiful poem uh, by verse by uh, Rumi. Also, do, would you like me to do it in Farsi or just do it in English only? Um, you can do it in both. Okay. You, you could do it maybe in, in Farsi first, your native language, and then, and then in English. So it says, Ey qawm bahaj rafte kujayid kujayid ma'shuf hamin jast biayid biayid ba in hama an ranj shama ganj shama baad afsus ke bar ganj shama parde shamaid. And the translation is, Oh my beloveds who are old pilgrims who are on your way to Hajj, where are you going? Your beloved is right here. Come back, come back. Did you know that your suffering is your treasure? Did you know that your suffering is your treasure? Alas, 
You are the veil covering your treasure. Beautiful. Beautiful. Very, very, um, very powerful. And the way that you say it, uh, the, uh, the, the message really sinks through when you're speaking in Farsi. You could feel it. You could feel it. And I know some of the people that were listening do speak Farsi. And that's a beautiful language. Well, wonderful country. And you're a, you're a magnificent mulhead. So Adi Hanarvad, we're delighted that you were able to join us today. And uh, we want you to come back because I have the feeling we're going to be working together on some projects. And you're, uh, you're without a doubt, um, somebody that has touched my heart from what I read about you in the past, from actually meeting you through the podcast right now. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to, to meet you. And uh, you're, a, you're a sparkling light in this world that we need to continue to head towards the light. And with the, the therapy that you're doing, whether it's the, the drums or the music or the dancing, uh, it's very, very powerful. And I'm glad, and I know these children are so glad that you've come into their lives. And I've talked to some of the people in Tijuana, they go, oh, yeah, you know, they're familiar with your work because you've been to their shelter. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and it's been an honor to have you with us, Ari. And on behalf of our producer, Sarah Bella, and myself, your host, Enrique Morones, this is another episode of Buen Hombre Magnificent Mujer. You can hear us every Tuesday at 3 o'clock on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. Uh, we're also on MagnificentMujer.org, BuenHombre.org, Apple Podcasts. Make sure you tune in and also let us know. Let us know if you want to find out more information about the guests or you have some ideas for other guests. This year, we will be highlighting throughout the year various individuals that are associated with Chicano Park and other individuals that are true, uh, true people that we should all get to know. Because the power of one tells us that each one of us can make a difference. And Ari Hanavad is one of those examples. So Ari, merci. And uh, continue going towards the light because you brighten everybody's world. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much, Enrique. It was a pleasure. As we say in Farsi, a mirror is looking upon another mirror. I like it. So don't forget, love is an action, not just a word. And love has no borders. We'll talk to you next week. Merci. Gracias. Thank you. Mm.